I am a semi-professional race car driver and an amateur tattoo artist. I knew I should have taken that left between the Albuquerque. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, as always, this stuff in lieu of actual entertainment. Alrighty then. Hello and welcome back. This is Storytime and I am Gamer Dude. Glad to have you with us for some more stories this week. Today I'm talking about cars again. I haven't talked in detail about cars since season one, really, which is kind of odd because I love cars. I've always been a car guy. I've always loved cars. I explained to you back in season one about my love for driving and my love for cars. So I thought it was high time that we got back to them. One of the reasons is cars have been on my mind a lot recently. And the reason for that is the high gas prices. As I record this, we're looking at record high gas prices in the U.S. Here in New Jersey, we're between four seventy-five and 5 bucks a gallon, which is ridiculous. And I told the story about my mom paying $33.9 for gas. Yes, that's how long I've been around. You could buy three gallons of gas for a dollar. My, oh my, how the world has changed. Quite honestly, I don't know why that sticks in my head. I was always aware of the price of gas because my dad was always aware of the price of gas. My dad was meticulous about budgeting. He was meticulous about saving money. He had in the glove box of his car, actually in the glove box of both cars, he had a little notebook where he would record where he got the gas, what the mileage was, how much he paid for it, and then he'd calculate his miles per gallon. Now, this is long before anybody was worried about miles per gallon, but my dad was worried about every penny, and my dad would drive across town to pay 33.9 instead of 34.9 at the station that was closer to him. That's just the way he was. And at the time, that penny made a huge difference because in those big old boats that we used to drive, I've told you about the family station wagon, that was a huge steamship of a car. That thing had to have had like a 25-gallon tank. And so if he got 20 gallons of gas and he was saving a penny a gallon, that's an extra 20 cents. And when I was a kid, an extra 20 cents made a difference. It's funny as I look back at that, 20 cents made a difference. My dad would drive cross town to save 20 cents. Nowadays, people walk by a quarter that's on the street. But that's how meticulous my dad was about budgeting and about keeping track of things. So that's probably why the 33.9 just stuck in my head. Now, by the time I started driving, gas was closer to a dollar a gallon. I seem to remember paying something like 75 or 76 cents a gallon when I first started driving. But that didn't last long because of the way oil prices have fluctuated all of my life. My point in talking about all that is every time the gas prices change, it makes me reconsider what I'm driving. And I'm in that process right now, reconsidering what I'm driving. I'm doing that for a couple of reasons. Number one, the price of gas. But number two, I currently own a car and then for going to auctions, for hauling stuff around, for carrying things to our storage facility, I have an old pickup truck. But it occurs to me, you know, paying insurance, paying gas on two vehicles and filling up two tanks of gas. Not that I'm going anywhere, but still filling up two tanks of gas. That's a lot of money to go out. So it's in the back of my head. I should probably rethink the driving situation. But as I've talked about in the stream, actually finding one of the cars that I'm looking at, which right now is the RAV4 hybrid that has the room that I think that I need to still haul some stuff, but gets great gas mileage and is one of those responsible choices that we should be making, you know, to protect the environment and our children's future, little things like that. But trying to get your hands on a RAV4 hybrid, I've found is next to impossible. They don't have them. Thanks to the pandemic and all the global shortages, you can't find one. You have to order one and hope you get one. So that's one of the things that I'm thinking of these days. And me changing cars is nothing new. Back in season one, I talked about some of the cars that I owned. I was trying to do inventory in preparation for this episode. As near as I can figure, I've owned 14 cars in my life. 
Not all at once, of course. But that's partly because when I was younger, I would be buying cheap used junkers, get them back together so they'd be at least drivable, and then use the car to go wherever I needed to go. All I needed it to be was dependable, mechanically. I didn't care what they looked like when I was younger. I mean, I would have loved to have had a fancy car. I would have loved to have a sports car or a big old pickup truck or something, but I couldn't afford it. I told you the first car that I had was a Volkswagen Bug that my dad gave to me because he couldn't get anything for it for a trade-in because it was beat to crap. My dad said, if you can get it running, you can drive it. So I got it running again. But I told you the story about how I had to buy a Carmen Ghia to get a front end off of that because the front end on his car, the Bug, was rusting out and ready to fall off. So I found the parts car, took it to the garage I was working at, took the front end off the Carmen Ghia, put it on the Bug, and got it running and got a bunch of miles out of it. Drove it to Ohio, as a matter of fact. But that's how I learned to become handy with cars, because I had to keep my cars on the road. I had to learn to tune them up. I had to learn to keep them going, because I couldn't afford to buy a new one. But yeah, I drove that Bug to Ohio. That was for college. But while I owned that Bug, I learned how to tune it up. And I learned how to keep it going. There was a book that came out, and I still have it on my shelves. It's one of the earliest idiot's guides. You know, those idiot guide books you find in the bookstores or online. But this one wasn't called an idiot's guide. It was called The Care and Feeding of Your Volkswagen. But it was written like an idiot's guide. And I absorbed that book. I sat down and I read that book. I understood that book. I committed portions of it to memory. Because I was so into my cars. There were times after hours at the garage where I worked at where I would just be tinkering. Adjusting spark plug gaps tightening belts. My dad had bought that car when they first offered air conditioning in a Volkswagen Bug. Now, for those who don't know, a Volkswagen Bug is an air-cooled engine, which means the air cools them, and if there's no air moving through the engine, it'll overheat. Now, I don't know if my dad understood that, because my dad was not a car guy. I became a car guy because I loved cars. My dad didn't love cars. He used cars. He didn't love them. So I don't know if he understood the strain that he was putting on an air-cooled engine by ordering an air conditioner with it, but he had an air conditioner in that, and he would occasionally use it. But the Volkswagen engine, it's a very small engine. It was a four-cylinder engine, air-cooled. If I remember correctly, it was 1,600 cc's, which is small. And he put an air conditioner in it, which after the first couple of years, it just stopped working. And he was pissed about that. He was always pissed about that. I paid the money for an air conditioner, and the damn thing doesn't work. He paid to fix it once and then refused to pay for it again. So by the time I got that car, I had a non-functioning air conditioning compressor in the engine compartment. One of the many things that I did to that car was take that out. Why carry that extra weight around? Why have that extra belt in there? Why have it at all? I'm a big windows down guy. I didn't need the air conditioner, at least when I was a kid. Oh, don't get me wrong. As an adult, I love air conditioning in my car, especially when I was working. On the way to work, always have the air on. On the way home, always put the windows down. Didn't want to arrive at work all sweaty and sticky and sloppy looking. But on the way home, let the wind blow. Sing my songs out the open windows. That's how I roll. Oh yeah, I'm a singer when I'm driving. Absolutely. Always have been. But let me get back. Let me get back to the Volkswagen. I took the compressor out. I tuned that car to within an inch of its life. And I got that tuning so razor sharp, I was getting 40 miles to the gallon in that Volkswagen. Back then, that was unheard of gas mileage, even in a Volkswagen. My mother, who was driving the Volkswagen van, which we also owned, would tell the guy at the shop where she took the van for service that I was getting 40 miles to the gallon in the bug, and he just scratched his head and said, how's he doing that? It just wasn't something that A, people talked about, B, tried to do, or C, thought was possible. But because I grew up with my dad tracking every mile per gallon in every car that he owned, I was conscious of it. 
And because I didn't have two nickels to rub together, even at 75 cents or 80 cents or a dollar a gallon, I was conscious of every dollar that I spent for gas. So I wanted to get as many miles per gallon as I could. 40 miles to the gallon? Great deal for me. And even at 40 miles to the gallon, if I was taking friends around, everybody would pitch in for gas. It was just a thing. Now, when I was in high school, if I could get a buck from every guy, that was three gallons worth of gas. That's 120 miles. We could go anywhere. And everybody was willing to pitch in a buck for gas. It's funny because nowadays you get a buck and you can put air in your tires. But back when I was first driving, a buck for gas was huge. I did love that Volkswagen bug. It was a great car, but it's a four-cylinder engine. It was a slow grind to drive it across Pennsylvania when I went to Ohio for school. And that's one of the reasons that I decided to sell it. I sold it in Ohio. And as I mentioned back in season one, I bought a used Plymouth Fury. So I went from a little four-cylinder car with an air-cooled engine to a giant V8 that seated six, had room in the trunk for a couple of kegs of beer, and got about 16 miles to the gallon. But I didn't worry about it back then because I was working. I had a job. This is back when I was working in retail at the drugstore. I'd come home for the holidays. They'd give me 60 hours of work a week. I made a boatload of money so I could afford my gas for the next six months. And that Plymouth Fury, boy, that was a fun car to drive. You go from a four-cylinder to an eight-cylinder, and all of a sudden, that gas pedal does something when you push it down. That's the only car that I've ever been 100 miles an hour in. Hypothetically, that's the only car that I would have gone 100 miles an hour in if I was crazy enough to take it on an empty interstate in the wee hours of the morning, just to see how fast it would go. I, of course, would never do such a crazy thing. (laughs) I'm far more responsible than that. Anyway... That Plymouth Fury was one of my favorite cars. I loved the Bug because it was my first car. But that Fury, I loved that Fury. Now, it was beat to crap. I bought it from a farmer just outside Bowling Green, Ohio. They kept it in a barn on the farm. They were selling it for 250 bucks, which is what I paid for. The old Plymouth Fury had four headlights, two for the low beams, two for the high beams. So when you put the high beams on, you actually had four lights pointing out in front. Except on this car, you actually had three headlights pointing forward and one of them pointing straight up. Because what had happened is the farmer had hit something. He didn't remember what. But the passenger front side of the car was pushed in a little bit. Not that I worried about it. I didn't care. But it was pushed in a little bit and just enough so that the outside headlight would point up. So when you put the high beams on, you'd have three lights beaming down the highway and then one pointing up into the trees off to the side of the road. It was quite the sight. And yes, you could see the beam. At night, that beam would go straight up into the trees. It was a weird little feature. I guess if you were hunting things that hung out in trees at night, it would have been perfect. But to me, it was an endearing little quality of the car. I loved it. I eventually did straighten it out because there is a benefit to having all four headlights work. But it was kind of cool to have that beam pointing up in the night. That Plymouth Fury is the one that I started to try to learn to do bodywork on. And I realized I hated bodywork. Now, if you've ever seen a rusted out car, you know what I'm talking about when I say this car had holes from rust. In addition to the front where it had been damaged, the trunk lid had holes in it, the fender wells had holes in them. There was rust all over this thing. There wasn't enough rust to make it dangerous. There was just enough rust to make it ugly. So that first summer that I owned it, I said, you know, I should probably try to fix some of that. I'll probably extend the life of the vehicle. Now, I'd never done body work before. I didn't know what was involved. There was no idiot's guide to doing bodywork, and I didn't know anybody who did bodywork. But in my infinite wisdom, I thought, how hard can it be? Turns out it's pretty hard. There was a product called Bondo, which was a bodywork compound. You could buy Bondo at any auto parts store, and so I found a small container of Bondo at an auto parts store and decided to start working on the trunk lid. 
What I didn't understand about Bondo was how quickly it would solidify. If you've ever done patching of walls in your house, like if you have a nail in the wall where you've hung a picture, back in college we would use toothpaste to fill those holes in. I know, not really cool, but it covered them up. As grown-ups, I've learned to use spackle. You get spackle at Home Depot and you fill the holes in with spackle. Well, Bondo is like spackle for cars. What I thought would be easy to do was be able to use Bondo to replace large sections of the trunk lid or of the fender well or of the fender itself. I thought, how hard could it be? That stuff cures fast. That stuff cures real fast. Once you mix the Bondo and start applying it, you got to work in small batches and you got to work quickly to make sure it goes on smooth. And then you have to sand it down and you have to make it look like the rest of the trunk lid. And I didn't realize how fast you had to work. I had a patch about, I'd say, 6 inches by 8 inches Swiss cheese gap on the back of the trunk lid. And I thought I could patch that up with Bondo. And I spread it over this 6 by 8 area, let it set there. Except I didn't have the right tools to smooth it out properly. So it was like I put ridges of solid plastic over the trunk lid, and it had bumps and points on it. And try as I might with my little wooden spatula, I couldn't get it to be smooth. Because I didn't have any of the tools to do that. Because I didn't know you needed those tools to do it. So I said to myself as I watched the bumpy, pointy, lumpy area of Bondo cure, I said, well, I should be able to sand that out eventually when it dries and cures and hardens. Except, no, you can't. Not the way I did it. I left so many ridges and bumps in there. There was no sandpaper that was going to take it down. I talked to a buddy of mine who did a little body work. And he said, oh, no, you need like a file and a power sander. And then you're going to need to do that in all these spots on the car. And I looked at the car and I looked at the cost of Bondo. And I said, you know, this car has character just the way it is. And I decided at that point, we'll just drive it till the body parts fall off. But as I said, back then, I didn't care how the car looked. Mechanically, if it would get me back and forth, if it would start when I put the key in it, and if it would stop when I hit the brake pedal, that's all I was really concerned about. And that was pretty much the rule for all of the cars that I ever owned. As long as they were mechanically sound, that's all I worried about. Back in Season 1, I told you about the Volvos that my cousin talked me into and my adventures or misadventures with them. The first car that I bought after the Volvos, when I was working regularly and had a regular paycheck and could qualify for a loan was a used Pontiac Firebird. Now, back then, that was one of the dream cars that I wanted. I think it was seven or eight years old when I got it, but I was working enough to qualify for a loan. Now, the Firebird that I got was the Rockford Firebird, not the Trans Am. If you know the movie Smokey and the Bandit, the Burt Reynolds character in Smokey and the Bandit drove the Firebird Trans Am. That's the one with the screaming eagle on the hood, the T-roof, the little spoiler on the back. That was a little too showy for me. It kind of screamed frat boy to me. That was not the kind of car that I wanted. I wanted the low-key but cool-looking vehicle like Jim Rockford drove in the Rockford Files. And there was a difference. The plain Firebird didn't have that screaming eagle. It didn't have the T-roof. It just had a cool, elegant line to it. The driver's seat had that cockpit feel. Steering wheel, bucket seat, little console in the middle, teeny tiny back seat. Friends could sit back there, but they had to scrunch up. But it had a cool look to it. That was the first cool car that I bought for myself. And it was really fancy for me. It was white. It had a nice stereo in it. It had that cloth interior, but it wasn't just cloth. It was like that velour cloth. So it felt really soft and fluffy when you sat on it. Oh, it was an awesome car. I loved that Firebird. The problem with the Firebird, it was a rear-wheel drive car, as most American cars were back in the 70s, 80s, and up through the 90s, especially the muscle cars. Anything sports car rear-wheel drive. 
And that's a problem if you're driving in weather or on curves or on curves in the weather. A car that has rear-wheel drive will fishtail like nobody's business on rainy roads, on snowy roads, even if you take a curve too fast. The rear-wheel drive will work great driving fast in a straight line. But once you want to maneuver or drive through weather, American muscle cars tend to not do so well. And I learned that the hard way with my Firebird. I was actually driving to work one day on a rainy day and took a curve too fast. I didn't realize it was too fast, but it turns out it was too fast. And the rear end fishtailed across the center line of the road. And what happened is the rear just scraped a car coming up the other direction. Just a little bit of a fender bender. The classic fender bender. My fender got creased a little. His fender got creased a little. We exchanged insurance information. It was all taken care of. Nobody was hurt. But that's when I had the heartbreaking realization that my cool muscle car wasn't so practical for the way that I like to drive and for the conditions that I usually drove in. I had to drive that car through a couple of winters, and boy, oh boy, driving that car in the snow, <laughs> that was an experience. That's when I started carrying around sandbags in the trunk of the car just to put some weight on those rear wheels. Gave me a little extra traction, but not a lot. It was enough to get me through a couple of winters, but I realized it was just not a practical car for me. And that's when I decided I had to trade it in. By the time I came to that realization, I was working full-time, had a decent job, had a regular paycheck. This is before I went to law school. One of the things I discovered about having a quote-unquote real job was that your credit rating went up. And so I qualified for more loans. And I was able to finance a brand new car. And so as I usually do, I did some research into the various cars that were out there. And I was looking at everything from Toyotas and Hondas to Fords and Volkswagens. What I wound up doing was settling on a Mitsubishi Cordia. Now, Mitsubishi used to sell a lot of cars in the U.S. I think they only sell SUVs now. They may still have one car they sell in the U.S. But years ago, they had a whole line of cars and SUVs and all different kinds of vehicles. And the Cordia was the Mitsubishi equivalent of a sports car. It wasn't really a sports car. It just had sports car kind of lines. It was still a four-cylinder engine. It wasn't a big engine. It wasn't a muscle car by any stretch of the imagination. But it was cool looking, and it was quick, and it got great gas mileage. So I went from my Firebird to my Cordia, started saving money right away because I was saving money on gas, and the Cordia was cool. It had a five-speed transmission, the first five-speed that I ever owned. I loved my Firebird. It had an automatic transmission and I dealt with it. I've always preferred the manual transmission. I like to shift the car, but because it was a Firebird, I put up with the fact that it had an automatic trans. But going back to the Cordia, I got a five-speed transmission. I got a cool-looking car, front-wheel drive, great gas mileage. I loved that car. That was a great car. I drove that car all over creation, man. I would drive that car on vacations. I drove that back to Ohio to visit friends. I drove all up and down the eastern seaboard with that car. It got great gas mileage, had plenty of room to take people around, had plenty of room to take luggage on vacation. It was a great vehicle. That's the car that I actually drove to Ohio when I went back for law school. It got me back and forth many a time. Just a good, dependable, solid car. And honestly, it's a shame that Mitsubishi stopped making cars, or at least stopped making cars that they sold in the U.S., because they were really good, dependable cars. I had a friend who had a Mitsubishi, loved it, I've never known anybody with a Mitsubishi vehicle that didn't love the car. That car actually got totaled in an accident. Not my fault. I was out of law school on my way to work one morning, driving in Morristown, New Jersey. By this time, the car had 175,000 miles on it. Yes, I drive my cars a lot, and I expect a lot out of my cars. 175, that's not bad for me. 
So I had 175,000 miles on the car. Was driving blissfully to work one morning. And a guy ran a red light and T-boned me in the intersection. He was coming so fast, he spun my car around 180 degrees. It was crazy. It happened so fast, I had no idea what was going on. But it was truly a sad day when the insurance company said, yeah, with that car, 175,000 miles on it, we're not replacing it. It's only worth about $2,400. Here's a check. Good luck finding a new one. It really broke my heart to have to give up that car. I didn't even get to my Toyotas in this episode. I'm going to say the best car I ever owned was a Toyota Solara. You may not have ever heard of the Solara. If you know the Toyota Camry, the Solara is a rare two-door Camry. They put them out for about five or six years in the early 2000s. The Solara was basically a Camry sports car. And that Solara, man, that was a tank. Four-cylinder engine, great car, great dependability. I drove that car till it had more than 300,000 miles on it. Yes, 300,000 miles on a car. I had a lot of journeys in that car. But once you put that many miles in a car, at some point, it's going to start giving out and you're not going to be able to keep up with it anymore. And that's exactly what happened. But we'll save that story for another time. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's episode. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for listening. As always, I appreciate your time. I appreciate your support. And I can't thank you enough. Until next time, you guys take care of yourselves. And I'll see you when I see you.